Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that you sent your Son. I thank you that we can gather together and we can rejoice, that we can celebrate the goodness of what you've done. I also thank you, Father God, that you've given us the Word, your revelation to us of who you are. I ask, Father God, that you'd speak to us, that you'd transform our hearts, and that the words this morning would be from you and not me. More of you, Lord God, and less of me. Amen. This morning's parable in our series in, on, on the parables of Jesus is from Luke chapter 15. It's commonly known as the, the uh, prodigal son, as the, the parable of the prodigal son. And, and it's probably the best known of all of his parables. The title prodigal son suggests that the story is about the younger son. But in reality, he's not the main point of the story. There's a lot about him, and that sets up what Jesus' point is. The main point of the parable is actually with the older son. To understand this parable, there's a lot involved, and it's imperative that we keep the culture in, in, in our thinking. Because if we don't keep it in that culture in which Jesus spoke, we can, we can add some things that aren't there, and we can miss some things. One of those first cultural aspects is that this parable takes place in a, in a society, in a, in a culture that was, was very much um, pursuing honor and, and shame, and, and avoiding shame. So, <clears throat> excuse me, playing and then speaking, I'm struggling here just a minute. <clears throat> so the culture there at that time, revolved around honor and shame. The Pharisees and the scribes were particularly consumed with avoiding shame at any cost. Jesus had, up to this point, just continuously irritated the Pharisees. And one of the things that irritated the Pharisees was that he spent time with sinners, with those that that society would have considered worthless and outcasts socially and religiously. Pharisees didn't like Jesus for doing that. And the people that were hearing this parable firsthand would also then hear the words that Jesus is speaking, and they would find these things very far-fetched, bizarre, wild. And the Pharisees would have been outraged at Jesus telling a story to that public, in that public setting, that went against so many cultural norms. It's full of cultural foupas. Jesus screwed up bad culturally. That would be the view of the Pharisees. The entire story is incredibly radical in that culture. It's over the top because everything in it is shameful in that culture. And Jesus planned it that way. We know that. He's directing this at the Pharisees. Let's start through this, and and I'm not going to read the whole thing. We'll just go through, and I'll make some comments. Chapter 15 of Luke, beginning in verse 11. And he said, A man had... Two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Those listening would have been shocked by this disrespectful expression. This just didn't happen. This was a major violation of the commandments of honoring your father and mother. This went against all of the norms. This would have been the same as this son wishing his father was dead. And the reason for that is that in that culture, the estate could not be transferred until the father died. 
You can ask for it all you want, but you don't get it until he dies. There's also a cultural norm that would have said if your son responds this way, if he's going to approach you this way, there would be a very possible public response. And some families would have even gone as far as possibly dismissing this son from the family and considering him dead. That's how severe this was. They would sometimes even hold a funeral for the son who would shame the father and the family in this way. This fits then with the statements that the father makes in verses 24 and 32 about the son being dead. The shame was intense. And anyone who knew what was happening in the family, and and we kind of make an assumption that they're in maybe a village or a part of a town someplace, so everyone would know. It's it's kind of like um, in the first town we served in, there was 800 people, including the cats and the dogs, and everybody knew whose stuff was what, and you just didn't, you, you had to be real careful who you talked to, because everybody was related. Everybody knew everybody's stuff. So as, as the community saw this, they also would have responded by going, this is, this is terrible. And the father's response continues with this, this shame and the shock because he grants the kid his request. And the estate is divided. And in the way this is, is worded, the request is to be understood then as a demand to take over his part of the estate, separate from the family, do his own management of the estate, And what he's saying is, I don't want anything to do with family. I don't want anything to do with dad. I don't want to do with anything. I don't want brother. Eh, I haven't got one. Now, when Jesus speaks these words, just in those first couple of verses, these events would have nearly sent the religious leaders over the edge. This was incredibly radical and outrageous. There's no honor being protected. Cultural norms are being ignored. And as Jesus tells the story, there's none of the expected consequences. The son's actions are fine. Okay, I'll give you what you want. The son is dishonored. The father is dishonored. The family is dishonored. And Jesus is telling an outrageous, radical, shameful story. One of his points is God gives people the freedom to choose to be sinners, and to choose their sinful course. And we all know that's true because he does that with us. In that culture, the father should have done everything possible to protect his honor, to protect the family honor, and to protect his son's honor. And by the way, where's the the oldest son at this point? Where's the older kid, you know? He should have been in the story protecting his father's honor. He should have been involved in this relationship and stopping the foolishness of his brother. He's nowhere to be seen until later in the story. Let's go on. And many days later, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. The Pharisees would have been struck by this as well. Because what's happening here is the son is gathering everything together and he's converting it to cash, basically. This is very foolish. Let's say there's property, there's real estate involved in the estate, which probably there was. Even if the son sold that piece of property, no one could acquire that property until the father died. 
That was part of Jewish law. So, so he converts it to cash. So to do that, he's going to sell it at an incredible discount. That's foolish. He's, that's part of his squandering. He, the son would sell the property way below its value. This would also become publicly known and would have been another unbelievably shameful action. Radical. The young man is what? He's, he's in a big hurry. He's in a big hurry to get on with his sinful life. He's got it in his mind, what he wants to do. And he travels to a distant country. The story is taking place in Israel. So any distant country would be a Gentile country. So what he's saying is, I am going to, I'm going to shift gears and I'm going to leave my family. And I'm going to end this relationship with family, Judaism, country. He's going to do his own thing. And people do that today as well. They try to get as far from God and His standards as possible. And we know from this parable, it didn't work out well for the son. He squandered his estate with loose living. Reckless, wasteful, deceit, depraved. He, he loses everything and becomes destitute. But it, get, it gets worse for him. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred. In that country, and he began to be impoverished. And a famine in those days was horrid. We don't have any clue in the United States what a famine is. You might have more of an idea of this. I have a little bit of a picture of it in some rural parts of India where I've traveled, but even that, it, it, it's, it's horrid. I read some about famine in the first century. They ate anything, including each other. It was horrid. Everybody was also aware of what a famine was because they were more common than they are today. They were terrible. So it's not any surprise to the people here in the story that this might have been one of the turns of events in this foreign country or anywhere. So what does the kid do? Verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. The word translated hired in verse 15 literally means to join to or glue to. And it would imply a person's attaching themselves to somebody in a citizen. So that's somebody that's probably of a higher status, maybe has some money, and he's looking for a handout. And I encountered this, this gluing, this attachment, one time in India. And we were out, <clears throat> we were in a, in, a, in a city. It wasn't one of the huge cities, but it was very poor. And they saw all of us Americans come in, and I had this beggar attach himself to me. And that, that's the best way to, to put it. I could not shake him. He's just jabbering in, in Hindi or in uh, Telugu. Just like constantly wanting a handout. And it got so bad that the only way I could get separated from this guy is by intervention with the other Indian nationals that we were with. They had to physically separate this guy from me. It was horrid. That's what this word is talking about. He's, he's in, a, in a foreign land. He's at that level of begging. He's starving to death. He's destitute. And now he's willing to go feed pigs. Swine, hogs. I've done that. I've fed hogs. It's great, but not for a Jewish boy. 
There wouldn't be anything lower than associating with swine. His condition is so terrible and he's so desperate that he's even willing to eat the, the pods, probably carob pods, that are fed to the pigs. And yes, technically they are edible, but I've read that that's like really hard to do for a human. And I, my mind, it's kind of weird, but I can just imagine him out there feeding the pigs and then arguing with some sow over the pods. No, that's mine! <laughs> Be just terrible. In the middle of all that, he comes to his senses. Verse 17. He said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He remembers how his father treated the hired men back home. He knows also that to return would mean to admit to the shame. He, he would have to endure that shame and he would have to re- endure the ridicule and, and the, 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 the life of being a cultural outcast because everyone in that community around where he lived would know. And he also understands that his only hope is to work for the family as a kind of restitution. He's got to work for being accepted. If he can work hard enough and long enough, there might be hope for reconciliation. Might be in that society. He recognizes, the other thing that's so important in that verse is he recognizes how great he has sinned. My sins are as high as heaven. My sins go all the way up to where you are. He knows how deep he has sunk and how far away from reconciliation he truly was. Verse 20, So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Fantastic passage. That is just loaded. That's a whole week's worth of sermons and Bible studies. Just that one verse. So we've got to cut that down a little. The expectations from those hearing the story would have been for the father to wait for the son. Culturally. We're talking culturally. Okay, so the father sees the son coming. The, the cultural is, okay, I'm going to wait for that boy to come here. And he's going to come and he's going to bow down and he's going to kiss my feet. And then we'll see. Because the idea was to retain honor. And the father has already said, you know, he's dead. You know, they, the, the cultural way was he wants nothing to do with that son. He might even go so far as to inflict severe punishment upon his son. Even though he's returned and admitting his error. But instead, the father does something incredible. And again, it goes against all social norms. First one, he runs. No one ran back then. You know, if if you were going to run, you were in a race. Because everybody wore robes, and robes and running do not work. If you don't believe me, give it a whirl. So to run, you'd have to hoist your robe up and gird your loins, which means you pull it up and you tuck it in your belt, and then you could run, right? It's just that the Jews had this other rule. That, that said it was really, really 
socially wrong to expose your legs, men or women. Exposing your legs, according to Jewish culture and law, was actually forbidden. The only people who were allowed were athletes in a race. And the word translated ran then in 20. So, we, you know, is he waddling with his robe? The word there means sprint. That's the word that was meant in the athletic events. He's sprinting. The father sees his son and he sprints to greet him. He gets there. A lot of shame there, but it's cool. The father brings more shame on himself because he embraces this guy. He smells like hogs. I tell you what, it could have been three, four weeks after he'd been feeding pigs. He still smelled like pigs. Trust me. We had two sets of clothes on the farm. We had the hog clothes and we had the normal clothes. You could wash the hog clothes forever and it's still going to smell like hogs. We have a very prominent vet. Am I, is it, I don't know what it is, but hogs do that, right? Okay, just so everybody knows I'm not lying. They smell bad and it lingers forever. He's dirty. He's rebellious. He has brought enormous amount of shame on the family. And the father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. And the language that's used here about the kissing implies that he kissed him all over his head. Really? What that means is the father fully, in every way, received his son back to him. This means that restitution has been made. The relationship has been restored. Let's go on. Verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they, they begin to celebrate. This is what the father does in Christ. He comes from the glory of his position in heaven. Jesus comes and he sprints to the lost. He's out there looking for the lost. He comes for the sinner. He seeks the sinner. Destitute, broken, dead. We're dead. And then he lavishes his grace upon the sinner. That robe, that robe would have been the best robe that the family owned. The ring, that would have probably been a signet ring. And it was a symbol of belonging and authority. Most wealthy families and families that had land would, would keep an animal around purposely for a special occasion, especially like for a wedding. And the father orders that calf killed and prepared for a party. Some descriptions of a party at this time, like this one, might have included 200 people with lavish music, dancing. And sometimes these lasted for days. This was a big party. The son that was lost is treated like royalty. This is an illustration of what Jesus taught in the other two parables in Luke 15. Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then also in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
this would have sent the Pharisees into heart failure. When Jesus starts talking this way, because they never understood grace. This becomes another one of those incredibly irritating things to the Pharisees. Too much shame. Too many things going beyond religious, hypocritical, social, cultural laws. Verse 25. This is where it really gets to the point of what Jesus wants the Pharisees and us to understand. His older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Important phrase. He received him back safe and sound. Now, in that culture, it would have been very customary for the oldest son to be the one who makes the arrangements for the celebrations. But the father doesn't consult the older son at all. He just does it. And one of the reasons for that becomes more apparent from the response of that older son. He was not respectful respectful to his father either. He's just as bad as the younger son. He doesn't understand what the party is about. And the phrase, that phrase, back safe and sound, it's so important. It would have implied that his brother was at peace with his father. And there had been reconciliation. So reconciliation has happened. This would have fueled even more anger with the brother, and it was also just shameful. The older son in this, in this story represents the Pharisees. It represents the Pharisees and their hypocrisy and, and their legalism. They were self-righteous, just like the older son. The, the older son was just as sinful as the worst tax collector. The Pharisees were just as sinful as the worst tax collector. They were all just as as guilty as can be. Guilty as the first son. Let's go on, verse 28. The older son became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father comes out and began pleading with him. He does it again. He goes against all of the cultural norms... He shames himself by doing this because he leaves the celebration. You wouldn't do that as the the head of the family. You just wouldn't do it. He comes out. He finds his, his hypocritical oldest son. But he doesn't scold him. Another, what? Shameful thing. What does he do? He begs him to come in and celebrate. Another shameful act by the father. The son continues his rebellion. He answers and said to his father in verse 29, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Look, in verse 29, would have been... An incredibly disrespectful way to greet your father. You just wouldn't do that unless you were really, really disrespectful, which this son was. The true nature of the son, the older son, is revealed. He had no love for his father, and he had no love for his brother. 
He was self-righteous and hypocritical. He wanted his own party. He wanted things his way. He thought he had arrived. And the father responds. He said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. The father doesn't address the son with some kind of scolding. He, he actually addresses him with a, a term of endearment. My little one. He loves the son. This response would have also confused and angered the Pharisees because the father is not rebuking the rebellious son. In this parable, Jesus teaches there are different kinds of sinners. But all sinners need the love of the father. Later in Luke, in chapter 19, verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Why does God do this? Because he's glorified when one sinner comes to him. In this parable, the Father is Jesus. Jesus represents the Father in this parable. And the older son hated him, even though he had been blessed by the Father. And this is a particular picture of the Pharisees. This is what the Pharisees would do. That's what they were up to. They had been given the revelation of God. They had God's blessing as the leaders of God's chosen people. But in just a few months, they would, they would murder Jesus by having him nailed on the cross. That horrible, despicable, most evil action was at exactly the same time, in, in exactly the same moment of it being so horrible, despicable, and evil, the action on the cross was also the greatest act of mercy and grace that has ever occurred. Jesus went to the cross, endured the suffering and, the, and, and death, and despising the shame. He took our shame and ridicule and purchased our eternal salvation. That's party time. That's why we need to be so filled with the desire to see people come to Christ so that we can have a bigger party. Let's rejoice. Let us rejoice and celebrate that Jesus has done this and let that also fuel our passion for the lost. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the goodness that you've given to us through your Son. I thank you that we, we wait for the time when we can be in your presence. I thank you, Father God, for the opportunity we have to, to share in your work. Help us, Father God, to see you running to the lost. And let us be stride for stride with you as we seek those who need the Savior. Holy Spirit, stir in us a new joy and, and a new depth of expectation while you remind us of who we are in Christ because of what he has done. Thank you, Father God. 
that you love us so much through your son. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.